0: Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. I'm Jeff Lynn, I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. With us today is Jonathan Rodden, a political science professor at Stanford. Hi,
1: nice to be with you.
0: And we are also joined today by guest co host Ari Stern, who is an associate professor of mathematics and statistics at WashU in St. Louis.
2: Hi, Ari. Uh, Greg,
0: thanks for having me here. Ari is an author of an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the Rucho against Common Cause case from last year, and Jonathan is also an author of an amicus brief separately in the same case. Thanks for being here. Today on the show, Why Cities Lose, the Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural-Political Divide, Jonathan's new book. It's hardly a secret that geography, politics, and economics are becoming increasingly interlinked and important in the United States and around the world. And Jonathan has produced a prodigious study of the topic, focusing on the United States, but with comparisons from other systems. And we are very pleased to have him here on the show to discuss. Jonathan, I wonder if you could, in a nutshell, explain what you're doing in this book.
1: Well, the book has two sections. It starts out asking a lot of questions about how it comes to pass that politics is arranged around an urban rural divide and how that is shaped by the electoral system, how this becomes especially important in what I call majoritarian democracies. So places that were Britain and its former colonies where elections are determined by a number of single member winner take all districts. I try to understand how that lends itself to the rise of an urban-rural political divide and how the parties come to be oriented around that cleavage. And then in the second part of the book, I then ask, well, what are the implications of that? When politics ends up becoming arranged in that way, what does that mean for politics in these majoritarian systems? And so I focus a lot on the US, but there's also there a lot of material on the other former British colonies and Britain itself. And that section of the book really focuses on representation. And so the title, Why Cities Lose, has to do not so much with economics, where many cities are doing very well, but with political representation, where in these majoritarian winner-take-all systems, because of the concentration of voters for left parties in cities, when we map these winner-take-all districts onto that geography, it ends up working out badly in many situations for the voters of these left-wing parties, which vary, of course, from one country to another. But it's this set of electoral institutions mixed with this geography that shapes representation in a way that I thought deserved explanation. To what extent is this
0: a story about cities having political representation problems versus the party that is identified with cities having political representation problems? Of course, those two things merge. But one thing you explain in the book is that wasn't always the case. I wondered if you could walk us through that.
1: Yeah, the book really does focus more on the political parties. Probably it's a less catchy title to try to bring that into the title of the book. And I don't do a lot of empirical analysis, for instance, of how much infrastructure spending happens in cities versus outside of cities in different countries. I think those are all things that are worth further exploration, but it's really a book about political representation and that the emergence of a left-right divide that really has its origins in the early 20th century, even before that, in the industrial era. And I spent a lot of time in the book explaining how it is that the geography of industrialization and the emergence of party systems that had their origins in that era, and then the evolution of those party systems over time, how that created the geographic pattern that we see today. And it's something that has changed a lot over time. And explaining that change is a big part of what the book is trying to do.
3: One of the features of the first part of the book that I especially liked was how well it clarified a theory of why left voters or Democratic voters are concentrated in the U.S. and cities today. You know, I think going into reading the book, I sort of had in my mind some theories that were more maybe familiar to economists. So, you know, economists talk a lot about selection and treatment effects. And so one theory of why there might be a lot of democratic voters in cities is selection effects. So people who are predisposed to vote for democrats are attracted to cities. They're selected to cities. And you know, you talk about some of these mechanisms in your book, right? Like because of durable housing, people who may be of redistribution are more likely to be in cities or because of like knowledge economy, employment opportunities. Those kinds of people might be attracted to cities too. And economists also think about treatment effects. And so another theory might be that left voters are created by cities, right? Somehow living in a city affects your attitudes and gives you more cosmopolitan preferences. I think what was nice about the book and came through very clearly was this third theory, which is that the parties themselves are shifting over time to the preferences of their constituents. And the Democratic Party being the urban party has, over time, tended to adopt the priorities of those people that live in the cities. You touched on this a little bit in the conclusion of the book, but I just feel like all of these sorts of mechanisms are sort of reinforcing the result that we see in the data today. But I wonder if you have an opinion about the relative strength of these forces, or even if it's possible to disentangle these different theories.
1: Yeah, first of all, that was a great summary of the important mechanisms. And so much of this is overdetermined in the sense that I think that it's absolutely the case that selection is taking place. And we have some good evidence of that. I almost feel that in the media portrayals of this, the selection story kind of dominates. People have this sense, and there was a lot of attention to a book called The Big Sort that really got a lot of popular attention, where the kind of notion is that we see all the decline of competitive counties in many rural places, and the presumption is all of the progressives picked up and moved to Manhattan to pursue a career in theater or something like that. We can look at evidence of moves and the numbers just don't add up. It can't be possible that the polarization that we've seen is purely a function of residential moves. And then, then there's also, of course, this treatment effect story where it could be that you move to cities. And in addition to all the social stuff, it could be that you learn to appreciate public transportation because it's more useful. There are various public goods that actually pay off in a dense setting that don't pay off. In a rural setting where you can kind of get by with a volunteer fire department and so forth, It doesn't work as well in a dense city. All those things are happening. But what I thought was missing from a lot of those stories, something about the way the parties themselves are changing. And I think you did a nice job describing that. Once a party gets a foothold in a place, it becomes the kind of place to go politically when you want something done. That creates this sort of ratchet effect where the party becomes even more entrenched in that place. When new issues get politicized, those end up having the same kind of geographic pattern. And so one of the really interesting questions is why in the world is the party of the urban working class from the early 20th century now the party of Silicon Valley investors? Why are laboratory scientists now an important part of the democratic coalition? I think to answer that question, we have to ask, well, how did the Democrats end up kind of forming an alliance with these groups? And to answer that question, it's kind of similar to when we ask, well, how do the Democrats become the party of African-Americans? How do the Democrats become the party of the pro-choice movement and the women's movement and so forth? I think all these things have a similar kind of answer in that once the Democrats become powerful in cities, mainly because of the urban working class in the early 20th century, it then becomes the case that other urban interest groups, when they want something, they end up coming to their Democratic representatives and pushing that party to take up their interests. And similar things happen in rural areas with the Republican Party. I think part of this is why the Republican Party has become the party of manufacturing and eventually adopted some kind of surprising anti trade attitudes. So geography has a role to play in what the parties are actually offering. And so even if nobody's moving or if cities aren't really having these treatment effects, We can still see big changes as groups realign according to the parties as they realign. I think that was always a missing part of the story of why these correlations between density and democratic voting have been going through the roof since the Reagan administration.
3: There's a very strong theme of path dependence in this story, right? Critical here is there's this positive feedback. There's sort of like this initial shock of this slight urban bias. Democratic Party that over time, because there's this initial slight urban bias, it makes it more likely that subsequent choices by party leaders and party members are going to increase this urban bias. And so you get this situation where a very small difference at the beginning can end up with a very sort of wide disparity that we see today.
1: That's right. It's something that I've been thinking about trying to formalize. Right now, it's just an argument that I kind of make just verbally, but I'm trying to think about some ways to formalize that argument. I think there's something to it. But at the same time, I should emphasize, it doesn't mean that once you're on this path, it just continues forever and it can never be undone. It seems like had, say, Bernie Sanders become the Democratic nominee and Trump somehow lost his bid for the Republican nomination to a more traditional Republican, we could have seen this start to unravel. If the Democrats would have taken up the anti-globalization perspective, it could have happened that way. It, It didn't. But it's not impossible to imagine an alternative universe where that was how things played out. And that could have started to unravel this kind of ratchet effect that I described.
3: Right. I think the comparative analysis across different countries is really helpful in the book for illustrating this as sort of a range of potential outcomes, right? Perhaps in like the 19th century, countries could have gone a bunch of different ways. And the extent that we observe different countries on very different paths, I think, suggests that there's some empirical content to this theory.
2: So I was going to ask, one of the questions your book really addresses is the question of why is it that the urban parties of the left are underrepresented? There are a couple of popular explanations. One is, of course, gerrymandering, the idea that the districts are drawn sort of in such a way as to deliberately underrepresent these parties. My question is, to what extent is the underrepresentation of urban parties of the left about gerrymandering and to what extent are other factors at play?
1: Yeah, thanks. That's one of the things I really try to tackle in the second part of the book. And the cover of the book has an image of the United States on it. But the book started out, actually, with a focus on the UK and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And I was thinking of not working on the U.S., but every time I presented it, all anybody wanted to talk about was the U.S. I didn't want to work on the U.S. initially is because gerrymandering was such a complexity. And everybody in the United States was convinced that when there is an asymmetry in the transformation of votes to seats, that that was a function of gerrymandering. And certainly it was the case that some of these industrialized states that I talk about are also some of the most gerrymandered states. So it's a very difficult thing to disentangle. And this is why I got interested in working on computer simulations of redistricting. And this is something that I started working on quite a few years ago before any of us were thinking about using this in court. I was trying to get around the problem of partisan redistricting and just get to the pure geography of partisanship to understand whether we would see a pro-Republican bias even in districts that were drawn by a neutral computer algorithm. So that's how I got into the business of drawing lots of simulated districts and, and right away started to see that that was indeed the case. But at the same time, once we have a nice distribution ensemble of districting plans, we can then look at the plan that was implemented by the legislature in a state. And in some of these states, we saw that those plans were somewhere way out in the tail of the distribution. And it occurred to us that that was a great way of trying to hold political geography constant and actually show to the court when gerrymandering had taken place. And so we used that technique in a court case in Florida right after the 2012 redistricting. And that was part of our testimony that led to the Florida redistricting plan being thrown out as a violation of the Florida Constitution, which has a provision that prohibits the use of partisanship in drawing districts. We realized that this exploration of political geography led to something that was useful for actually understanding gerrymandering. So gerrymandering was, in the beginning of my analysis, was a sort of a that was an annoyance. I wanted to get rid of it. And that was why we did that. And then it led to, I feel like, a better understanding of gerrymandering and how to measure it and how to identify it. So
2: even in the absence of gerrymandering, even if your districts are drawn by an algorithm, you still see a partisan tilt due to the urban concentration of these parties on the left. And then if you see even further tilting than that, then that's a possible sign that gerrymandering is at work.
1: Right. And I should add that one of the things that's interesting about this is we can go state by state and we can see that, yes, in many states, especially those industrialized states in the Northeast and the Midwest, we do see even a 100,000 computer simulations will produce, on average, some bias in favor of the Republicans. But I should say there are states where that's not true. And that itself, it's getting away from the courts and the political battles. It's just an interesting question for geographers and mathematicians as well. Is what are the conditions under which you can draw a bunch of simulations and not see that bias? And I think that's an active research program. But in the book, I talk about places like Arizona where there isn't a compact 19th century core to the big cities that had to do with working class housing and all of that. In the era of the automobile, that type of city, you know, Phoenix is kind of a classic example of a very sprawling city with a low density gradient. And that kind of place seems not to produce this phenomenon in nearly the same way. So that's just an interesting thing. And it does matter, I think, also for thinking about future legal battles and so forth.
3: That was a real aha moment for me when I read that in the book. When you look at the typical Democrat, the typical Democrat lives in a neighborhood that's overwhelmingly votes Democratic, whereas the typical Republican lives in a neighborhood that is slightly Republican, votes Republican. And the implication of that just from geography and geometry is that it's going to be much harder to draw district boundaries where those Democratic votes aren't sort of, quote unquote, wasted.
1: Yeah, and this is why the book has so much history in it. I think that is a function of the way the cities emerged. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, And this is something that led to some interesting conversations with other mathematicians and folks who are really trying to model this and understand how this works. It's not like it's inherent in the presence of a correlation between density and voting. You can imagine a really strong correlation, but if all the Democrats are in cities and all the Republicans are in rural areas, where there's a bimodal distribution, but there's no real bias, there's something subtle about urban form in the concentration, and I think it has to do with the presence of rental housing. This is where, for urbanists and people who care about urban form, the interesting stuff here is where we get. The urban economics literature, urban sociology literature, kind of running up against the discoveries of computer scientists and mathematicians who are really pushing the frontier with better ways of running the districting simulations and kind of tweaking different parameters in those simulations. And so we're kind of learning a lot. I think we will continue to learn a lot in the next few years about how all that works out. But it doesn't have to be that way. There are urban settings where you don't really see this bias. And I think those are usually more sprawling, kind of auto-oriented settings, but there's still more to learn about this.
0: This was an aha moment for me as well. And you've just mentioned a couple of levers, policy levers, that in principle could be used, for example, legalizing apartments in areas that are currently de facto restricted to homeowners and how that might change the political makeup a little bit. One thing that I think your book does an excellent job of is explaining why this phenomenon exists in the US, but also exists overseas, but is particularly consequential in the US because of a couple of different forces. And some of those surely are Economic or are idiosyncratic to municipal politics, things like zoning and so on. But then others are things like our two party system, our winner take all electoral districts, of course, the electoral college, of course, the composition of the Senate. But you also talk about how state legislatures, which are under a mandate to draw their districts fairly, you know, there are different ways of doing that, but State legislatures and the U.S. House, even those places. So in other words, not just the Senate, not just the Electoral College, and not just gerrymandering. Even places like the House and the legislatures of various states have a lien that favors some areas over others. I wondered if you could speak to that a bit.
1: Yeah, this was one of the things in the book that I thought was one of the most effective ways of asking the question, well, how do we know if it's gerrymandering or if it's geography? And the simulations are, of course, one way to do that. And then looking at other countries where the districts are drawn by commissions and so forth, and still seeing some kind of bias like this is valuable. But I think it's also useful to go back over time in the US. And so one of the things I I think it was probably a pretty well-chosen case study given what we're thinking about this week. But I spent a lot of time looking at Pennsylvania. And so this is a setting where people who know Pennsylvania politics know that statewide elections have favored the Democrats from Senate elections to gubernatorial elections to presidential elections. Over the last decade, I don't have the numbers on top of my head, but the Democrats have done much better than the Republicans statewide. But the Republicans have had a lock on the state legislature. And the state legislature really matters. Under some of the thinking of some of the justices on the Supreme Court, it would apparently be the case that if this Pennsylvania legislature decided to allocate the electors of its own choosing, they would have the right to do that. So the legislature is really important. And the kind of reaction to the dominance of the Republicans in the state legislature for many Democrats is, well, it's gerrymandered. And I'm sure there's evidence that that's true. But if we look at how the districts are drawn for the state legislature in Pennsylvania, it's not just a free-for-all. There's actually a commission, and the commission has equal number of Democrats and Republicans. But then the tie-breaking vote on that commission is someone that's chosen by the other commissioners, and if they can't agree, it's chosen by the state Supreme Court. Now, one of the other funky things about Pennsylvania is the state Supreme Court is elected, and at the time of the last redistricting in Pennsylvania, the tie-breaking vote was someone who was appointed by a Republican majority Supreme Court. So the claim is that the Republicans were able to get what they wanted in the redistricting process. However, as you mentioned, that redistricting process is pretty constrained by some rules about municipal boundaries. And if you look at the districts, they are trying to honor municipal boundaries, and they often do. And it is possible to sue if districts are drawn that really do a lot of violence to municipal boundaries, then it's possible to sue successfully in state court. So there are some constraints on that redistricting process. But then in any case, if we go back over time and we see how this has played out, we can look at times when the Democrats appear to have had the upper hand and times when the Republicans appear to have had the upper hand in the redistricting process. And we go all the way back to the 40s, and it turns out that the Republican advantage in seat share over vote share has been around really ever since World War II in Pennsylvania. And over this whole period, the Democrats have done pretty well statewide in lots of different periods, including the current period, and not been able to control the state legislature. So it's kind of an interesting long-term pattern that we see in Pennsylvania. And we see some similar things in places like Michigan and uh, some of the other upper Midwest states where these legislatures are very important. And So we have this pattern of Democratic senators and governors, but Republican state legislatures. And the typical answer is, well, it's all gerrymandering. And my answer is, yes, it's partly gerrymandering. But the thing that put the Republicans in a position to do the gerrymandering was, in part, this geographic advantage.
0: So, Jonathan, a moment ago, you were talking about the industrial Northeast and voting patterns there, and you trace it back to the late 19th century. Are there are any number of ways that one could operationalize an analysis of industrial areas and any number of mechanisms one could use to try to explain differences. You choose one in the book that I think is really interesting and I find persuasive, but not obvious to an outsider. And that is the location of 19th century rail lines and rail nodes. And so I wondered if you could say a word about how you chose that and why you find it such a powerful explanation.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's something that I spent a lot of time trying to find from the census or from any other historical files, trying to figure out addresses of factories in the early 20th century. And I just never could find anything that really did the trick. I'm just interested in the history of railroads, as, as I think probably a number of people who study economic history are. There's certainly a kind of a subculture of trying to understand railroads and the impact of railroads. But as I just mapped railroads and started kind of looking at the places where I did have a good sense of where the factories were and had some other data on that, I noticed that it was very much the case that in the era of early 20th century manufacturing I was interested in, was all rail based that was how of course the canals matter as well and i think ideally it would be good to have data on canals also but the era of canals was very short and the canals were very quickly replaced by railroads and so i think i can really get a pretty good sense of where the early 20th century industrialization was by just looking at those rail nodes which are ultimately places where freight could be loaded and unloaded in that period and then we didn't really add much to our rail network since that period so yeah, there are a few commuter train stops in Connecticut that we might want to edit out because that's not really quite what we're looking for. But most of these rail nodes are they're bike paths now. But nevertheless, these places where the train used to go are the places where there was early kind of working class housing. And then once you have that working class housing and the apartment buildings, you still have poor people, you still have immigrants and all the other things that correlate with democratic voting.
0: I was curious what the through line is from The 1880s to today, in terms of explaining why those areas, you know, one example you use is Scranton. So, why Scranton votes like Philadelphia? Surely they don't merely both consider themselves cities. There's so many differences between the places. And I'm wondering if it's something about the culture that changes because of the location of the rail node, then feeding industrialization, or if it's something about unionization, or if it's merely the presence of rental housing and greater economic diversity. Or if you don't have a causal claim, I'm curious how you assess that.
1: Yeah, it's another one of those things that feels a little overdetermined. There's so much going on. And I have a, the data rich setting for the US here is really helpful. Because this was a book that was aimed at a bit more popular audience, all this stuff ended up in footnotes. And probably I should write a couple of more rigorous papers on this. But I took the boundaries of precincts and superimposed them on these rail nodes and then connect that with lots of other block group level data from the census. And so we can can look at the impact of renters as a share of the population at the level of the precinct. We can look at age, we can look at income, immigration, race. And when we control for all that stuff, the rail node variable is still highly significant and the impact is still pretty big it goes down a lot when you add these other variables. So rental housing is a big part of the story, but it's not everything. This thing is still kind of stubborn. And the question, well, what's left? You know, I think that's the question you're asking. Well, what else is, is going on? Because that's where things really get interesting if you're thinking about this as a historical legacy. It's an interesting story. You build some housing and then that housing kind of attracts poor people and it attracts young people and immigrants and so forth. That's an interesting story. But there's even this more interesting story: is like, is there something in the air, or something that is transmitted from one generation to another? Political scientists do a lot of work like this, where they try to understand the intergenerational transmission of political ideology. And there is a lot of evidence that people get some ideas from their parents, and that you can pass a pro-union attitude along to the next generation, even if you were in a union, but your child is not. Some of those ideas can be passed along. But I'm also very interested in the institutional correlates of unionization. So it might be that you had a lot of unionized workers some decades ago. And then when the manufacturing started to leave, the union organizers had to do something. And so they started organizing the public sector and the nurses and some of the other entities that previously had not been unionized. And so you end up with high rates of public sector unionization in some of these places that historically had a lot of uh, manufacturing and mining unions. And so then maybe the kind of legacy lives on through those things. There are several interesting stories there that I think deserve more careful analysis in the book and make reference to all these things. And I think they all matter, but there's a a lot to still learn, I think, in general about how long-term legacies end up propagating over time.
3: There's an interesting framework that comes into play when you're looking across different states in the U.S., which highlights kind of the importance of thinking about sort of the sizes of cities and their spatial relationship to each other and the scale of that relative to the scale of the districts that are being drawn. And so in some cases, when those cities are smaller in scale and maybe further apart, that leads to a Republican favoring map. That would be like the Western Pennsylvania kind of example, perhaps. And then in Another sort of arrangement of cities and a different kind of size distribution of cities, like perhaps in eastern Pennsylvania, you have a much more democratic favoring map. It turns out that that sort of intuition is transplantable across different states. That was kind of a framework that I especially enjoyed in the book as a way of just thinking about how to think about different states and their different political environments.
1: I think there's still a lot more work to be done. One way you could do this is sort of make up different kinds of fake metropolises and say, let's move up and down the kind of scale of the districts and let's look at the city sizes and let's kind of try to do this in a really scientific way. And I think that's something that I'm still interested in doing more. This is kind of work that is doing in collaboration with some mathematicians, but I kind of like using real data and there's so much diversity, you know, like in that Western versus Eastern Pennsylvania example. So I've just wrote a follow-up paper with a mathematician, Thomas Feigel, where we're looking at exactly that. We're taking Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Pennsylvania, and we're trying lots of different scales of redistricting, because one of the interesting ideas here is that it matters whether you've got very small districts. I mean, at the limit, the districts are me and my family are one district, right? You can make really small districts if you want. And most other countries do have much smaller districts than the U.S. And then you can kind of take that and increase the scale of districts all the way up to U.S. congressional districts or beyond, and see how things change. And, you know, we just did it as a first cut. We played around with this in Western and Eastern Pennsylvania, which, as you describe, have these two different patterns, one big city and not too many surrounding cities on the west of Pennsylvania. And on the east, we have this big city surrounded by a bunch of satellite cities. And things get interesting when you start drawing congressional districts, which are so large in that setting, because you can easily start to include a couple of these old industrial cities in the same congressional district, and then they might be enough Democrats to overwhelm the surrounding Republicans. So these are the kind of ins and outs of geography that matter. It's kind of combining the insights of geographers and mathematicians is, I think, what has to happen next.
3: So I wanted to go back to an earlier part of the conversation. The idea of positive feedback forces is really a central one in urban and regional economics. They're a principal reason why urban economists think cities exist, right? Because existing firms attract other kinds of activity. They attract input suppliers. They attract specialized kinds of labor. And so a place that sort of has an initial advantage can kind of basically enter this virtuous cycle where increasing in size makes that place even more attractive, which makes it grow even faster. At the same time, though, in these kinds of models in urban economics, an important element of these models is to have some kind of dispersion force, some kind of break on this positive feedback loop. Sometimes people call it like a no black hole condition because without it, what you would end up with is everybody (laughs) located in a single point in space, right? So that's why no black hole. And dispersion forces are things like traffic congestion or pollution or crime, something that kicks in when a city gets too big so that, you know. People stop wanting to move there. The sort of story you're telling in the book has a lot of features in common. It has these positive feedback loops where sort of like the urban bias of the historical Democratic Party became increasingly large due to actions taken over time. I wonder if there's a parallel in terms of a dispersion force. Is there a factor that is around that provides maybe a natural break on this positive feedback loop? Is there an end or is the end state one where a complete polarization between urban and rural and the left and right parties?
1: So that's a very nice question. And it's one I've given a lot of thought to. You know, I think that's an especially interesting question to try to grapple with during election season and one where we know that the correlation between density and voting will be strong again. But one of the things we haven't talked about much yet in this conversation is suburbs. And that's something that everyone is currently talking about because something is happening in the suburbs, something is changing. And so when you ask about dispersion forces, one thing I'm interested in, and I think lots of folks are interested in, is, is that suburbanization is continuing to happen. It never really has stopped. I think there was some hype for a while about the return of certain kinds of educated consumers to city centers in some big and successful cities like San Francisco and Seattle but for the most part the story of of american political geography is one of continued suburbanization and covid is perhaps uh, even increasing that trend and one of the things i point out in the last chapter of the book that i don't think gets enough attention is that a lot of the suburbanization now is driven by minorities who tend to vote reliably for democrats and so that is increasing the dispersion of democrats a bit so i think we already see a little bit of an unwinding of this and the other thing I think the dispersion force related to cities in general that you gave a little list and one you didn't mention was home prices. And I think that's one of the really important, we've just reached the limits in places like San Francisco and young educated people are starting to move both within metro areas and across metro areas. And that's one of the things that's getting a lot of attention in this pre-election period is that people are moving to places that are more politically heterogeneous. And so one of the things I've noticed is that counties that are gaining population, when we look over time at presidential vote shares, they're becoming more competitive or more, or more democratic. The people who are moving outside of some retiree kind of destinations, people who are moving tend to be educated, mm. uh, urban, uh, young people. And they are often moving to places that are more sprawling uh, and where pr- houses are, are more affordable. And so it could be that the dispersion force that you're thinking of is there, and it it has to do with the inability of people in places like San Francisco politically to build adequate housing. You know, it's ultimately a political problem. Of course, it could be solved. You could build a lot more housing, but we're not doing it. And so that does create a problem for, say, the Republicans in Texas who are being inundated with new migrants who have a different political persuasion.
2: So this sounds like this is sort of the opposite of that big sort narrative that we were talking about earlier. You see, when you look at the effects of people moving, it actually has a sort of effect of sort of dispersion of the party of the left as opposed to concentrating them in cities.
1: This is what I'm getting from very recent data analysis, and it's a little provisional. I want to do a lot more work on this, especially over the next few years to see where this is heading. But it's not the case that Democrats who are picking up and moving are moving to very Democratic urban core areas. Most of them are moving, and this was true before COVID and might become even more true after COVID, most of them are moving to places that were either a little bit Republican or that were already somewhat heterogeneous. So if you look at the places that are really attracting New migrants. It's these new auto oriented cities we were talking about earlier. It's the Houston, Phoenix, Orlando. If you just make your list of counties that are gaining population in the US, it's not big, overwhelmingly democratic places where no one can afford a house. Those places are losing population. The population gains are happening in the places with more affordable housing, you know, the Austin, Texas suburbs, you know, places like that. So we're talking about places that were pretty either Republican or already becoming competitive, only becoming more competitive. So yeah, I think that the big sword is starting to move in the opposite direction now. I could still turn out to be wrong about that, but all the data I've looked at so far.
3: Just to yeah. add on to that with one example, you know, the work from home trend, especially in knowledge economy kinds of jobs, would exactly point in the direction of this greater dispersal from urban cores that you've just been talking about.
1: Yeah, just a little anecdote about that. There is an incredible real estate frenzy happening right now in Truckee, California. So all around Lake Tahoe, there is a huge influx. It's only a three-hour drive from San Francisco. And as work from home has taken off, all of the San Francisco kind of high-income young people have decided what they desperately need is a house at Lake Tahoe. And the houses are, from their perspective, basically free. They're so much cheaper than the apartments they've all been bidding up in San Francisco. And all of a sudden, everyone kind of realized this at the same time, that they could buy a single-family home for a fraction of an apartment in San Francisco. And so there's a big bidding war going on and lots of people moving to this place in rural California near the Nevada boundary, which has been a Republican congressional district, but an increasingly competitive one. And so as more San Francisco people move to Truckee, it's potential that both in the state legislature and in Congress, we could see a rural-oriented district that flips. And that's just one example, but I think things like that are happening in other places. What everybody in the media focuses on right now is, are are the COVID refugees moving to swing states? Because everyone is obsessed with the electoral college for good reason. But I'm kind of interested in the congressional and state legislative districts as well. And if people are leaving city centers and sorting themselves out into more sparsely populated places that helps the democrats overcome this concentration problem that has been troubling them for decades
0: there are two parts of that i want to amplify a little bit so one is the the work from home phenomenon has been seen often in terms of a labor market question and to some extent a political question but i think One thing that will dictate the consequences is whether people who leave San Francisco can take their salary with them or whether they'll, whether their salary will be reduced. This is very much a something that is not yet determined, but I did see this week that Reddit announced that they would allow people to continue earning their salary, which presumably is partly inflated in order to account for housing costs in high-cost metros, no matter where they go. So some companies have gone the other direction, said that they would localize their salary rate, and it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Obviously, if you get to take your high salary with you, then being more remote is even more appealing, right? You have the, not just a real improvement in your cost of living, but you actually keep the same cash. Um, the other piece is the housing market. I wonder if, to your earlier comments, Jonathan, I wonder if we've just stumbled across a bipartisan consensus at the national level in favor of zoning reform. Because if California is exporting voters to Texas and Atlanta and Nashville by virtue of its local land use policies, then maybe that's something that Republicans from those areas could care about.
1: It's hard for them to impose their zoning policy preferences on Palo Alto, which is what would be needed. But yeah, you could imagine some national legislation or you know, some effort. I think there is a there is a lot of discussion of what it is that California does wrong. Of course, there, there's a long list of things that, especially Republicans from outside of California, will point to. But I think that isn't something that lots of people can agree on. That affordability problem, you know, the housing crisis and the homelessness crisis in California cities is something that needs to be addressed. And it might even be, you know, if we think. Far enough into the future, a world in which the Republican Party tries to become more competitive in cities, even in California cities, this is the kind of issue where they might have options to to uh, highlight something that urban voters are frustrated by.
0: One interesting trend has been the alignment of urban and suburban voting on one hand, and exurban and rural voting on another. It's something you touch on in the book, you know, so some of that, as you mentioned is the suburbs are becoming more racially diverse. But it's also the case, as I understand it, that white voters in traditional suburbs, as opposed to exurbs that are further afield, have also shifted their voting behavior to a degree in favor of Democrats. I wondered if you could speak to that trend. I know this is very recent, so it may be that the, the information just isn't there yet. But I wondered if you had thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, that's one of the other things I just start to talk about at the end of the book in a sort of a hand-wavy, kind of provisional way. As I was finishing up this book on this long-standing phenomenon, I start to notice the world is changing a bit. And the geographic advantage that I'm writing about in this book, the suburbs are a really important part of that. So a lot of the story in the book is told through a series of graphs. where on the horizontal axis of the graph is the distance from the city center. And on the vertical axis of the graph is the Republican vote share. And there's this increasing function as you move out from the city center that the Republican vote share increases, but it increases with a different slope in different cities. And that corresponds to what we were talking about earlier, the difference between Orlando and Phoenix and, say, Philadelphia. But what we're seeing in lots of places is that, that that slope is changing all around the country in a uniform way as... People in those middle ring and even some outer ring suburbs are moving to the Democrats. And that means that the places that in the past would have been won by a small but comfortable majority by Republicans are now competitive and they're now reachable for Democrats. And that's a big part of what happened in the blue wave of 2018 is Democrats won some of those kind of suburban, exurban even mixed districts that have some rural component. They were able to win in places like Oklahoma, you know, suburban Oklahoma City. And suburban South Carolina. Is if that is something that lasts, if that is a realignment that becomes quasi-permanent, then this is very bad for the Republican Party. They have they have effectively given away something that was very valuable, which is this advantage in these pivotal places. But the unknown here is whether this has to do with the personality and the reaction to a very unpopular, unusual president or whether this is something longer lasting. I think everybody knows that's the question, and I don't think anyone knows yet the answer because it depends very much on what the Democratic Party becomes. If it does have a chance to govern, how does it resolve its own internal battles between the urban core and the suburban moderates? If it does so in a way that is perceived as favoring the urban core too much, they could easily lose their newfound advantage in the suburbs. And so this is... What we have ahead of us to watch and and see how it develops. I do think we have some interesting other cases to look at for lessons. I I talk in the book about Great Britain, where for decades, the Labour Party was stuck in its urban bastions, winning these large majorities, but having trouble winning in suburbs and then having trouble turning votes into seats. And in the Tony Blair era, they turned that around and they were able to moderate and win in suburbs in a way that people at the time thought was sort of permanent. This is the new labor. This is the new kind of suburban dominant labor party, and that lasted for a couple of election cycles. And then we went right back to where we were with the labor party of Jeremy Corbyn and you know concentrated urban victories and difficulties in the suburbs. So we'll wait and see what happens with the the newfound prowess of Democrats in suburbs.
0: The labor party story is fascinating. I'm far from an expert, but I was living in London. In 2010, when David Cameron came in and it's remarkable that in the ten years since there have now been three Tory prime ministers and Labour's position seems at least to a casual observer seems to have just become more tenuous over time despite the lack of popularity of the of the Conservatives.
1: One of the interesting um, things to notice though is that in each of these elections the, you know the Conservative Party is not like they are winning a majority of votes. Their vote share is often in the 40s. It can even, you know, it's possible to win a parliamentary majority in Britain with 39% of the vote. And the same thing is true in Canada. And the reason for that is that the left is divided between the Lib Dems and Labour. And to some extent, even you know, the Scottish National Party, which has become the sort of de facto party of the left in Scotland. And you see some Greens competing in there as well. And so the left has this fragmentation that you don't see on the right. And that's a big part of the story. If it was more of a two-party system like the U.S., things would look a little different.
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask a question. So um, you talk a bit in the book about how previously some of the differences between sort of these large deads urban cores, about how, for example, Democrats occasionally did well elsewhere by adopting sort of differing local policies, how the party was more heterogeneous and you had blue-dog Democrats that— represented, you know, sort of a different collection of policies from Democrats in other geographic areas. And you talk a little bit about the decline of that. So has that become more difficult with sort of the increasing nationalization of politics, sort of the rise of social media? Is it impossible for, you know, a Democrat in the Midwest to run and say that they're not on the same page as Nancy Pelosi on everything?
1: It's hard to know. Like we can look at what's happened and we can try to draw inferences about causality and it's hard to know what the, you know, there's plenty of evidence for some kind of a nationalization in politics, but it may not be inevitable and it may not be as overwhelming as we sometimes imagine. You know, the question is, is it still possible to carve out a local reputation with a D next to your name that is distinct from the voters' perception of what that D means nationally? And what I've tried to argue is in a parliamentary system, it's just really hard to do that because it's a vote of no confidence and that people can whip you and can threaten to bring the whole government down if you don't vote with them. So everyone knows that. And that's a very different world. In the U.S. presidential system, you know, you can run with a D next to your name and your policy platform is that if you are elected, you will take it to the Democrats and you will change them or you won't vote with them on a whole variety of issues. And for instance, you will stand up for gun rights, and you could even try to run as a pro-life Democrat. And as I point out in the book, this happens less frequently now than it used to, but it's still possible to do. And I think part of the Democrats' success in 2018 was kind of trying to return to that playbook. But clearly, it's harder now than it used to be to play that strategy. But clearly, they're also still trying, and they may may be able to do it in some places. You know, Montana is a place where All of this gets very interesting. And it's also even the case that in Kansas, I I think gubernatorial elections are where this especially happens. For some reason, it's possible to kind of disassociate yourself from the party when you're running for the chief executive of the state. And I mean, just look at New England and all the Republican governors who are so successful in Massachusetts and Vermont. Vermont has Republican governors very frequently. So This is something that clearly can be done, for instance, in Kansas gubernatorial in the Northeast of Montana. But when it comes to Senate and House races, it becomes a bit more difficult. Because I think it was an explicit strategy of the Gingrich era Republicans to try to make the U.S. feel more like a parliamentary system by trying to nationalize politics and try to create a situation where the Democratic Party label is associated with the following things and the Republican label. You know, through the contract with America, was supposed to be a much more meaningful thing. And that was a strategy. That was something that was put into place by strategic partisans. And whether we could see a return to something else, I think it seems plausible. I don't think it's necessarily the case that the national media environment is so centralized that you can't still carve out some local strategy.
0: I think it's fascinating to watch this unfold right now. It seems we also have another phenomenon happening where, as you mentioned, a number of these Republican districts flipped in 2018 and were replaced by Democrats. And sometimes those Democrats are very moderate, but other times they don't seem to feel a need to carve out a rep that's different from the national party. I'm thinking here, especially of Katie Porter, who flipped a district in Southern California and is now, within a short time, has vaulted herself to a national position of prominence on the left side of the party. There are others in the party who are to her left, but she doesn't seem to have tried to stake out a centrist position, for example, which might have happened in the past. And I I think this kind of synthesizes some of the points, Jonathan, you were making about the suburbs becoming more competitive, such that if somebody wins them, they don't necessarily have to walk the middle, even if the district is somewhat competitive, they have more flexibility. Whereas previously you had Democrats winning states or districts that had a Republican lean and so had to be more careful.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of, not to say that everything is just needlessly complicated, but there is a lot of heterogeneity among what might look like a swing district. And that's one of the things I think there's a lot more to learn about. That using precinct level data and kind of drilling down a little bit, we can learn some things. So, you know, there might be a district that looks to be extremely competitive. We we'll add up the presidential votes in recent elections and it's 50 50. But then if we drill down to the precinct level data, one of my favorite districts to think about in this regard is the district around Lansing, Michigan. It's one where the urban core and the Michigan State campus and the surrounding neighborhoods are extremely democratic. But the rest of the district is relatively rural, and we see the same kind of mixed suburbs and very rural Republican periphery. And so it's a 50-50 place, but there aren't a lot of 50-50 neighborhoods it's an internally polarized place where you might run as a Democrat by trying to eke out as much turnout as possible from the Michigan State and Lansing, you know, downtown urban constituents. And likewise, as a Republican, you want to try to minimize turnout in the city and try to maximize turnout in rural areas. And And you have no incentive, really, to go and try to behave as a moderate, even though it would look on paper like a moderate district. But once you get elected, you have no incentive to try to behave as a moderate. It's all a turnout battle between these different base groups Then no one has incentive to go and look like moderates. But I think there are also districts like these ones in, in, say, on the exurbs and the rural parts of Pittsburgh, where there's a history of mining and industrialization, where you have people with center-left preferences, perhaps on economics. But conservative social preferences, a district like the one Connor Lamb was able to win. In that kind of place, yeah, I think he has incentives to behave as a moderate, and that's kind of his path to victory.
0: It's going to be really interesting to see and how, of course, COVID and remote schooling you know figure into this if there are representatives that are depending on concentrations of college students, for example, and and those people are not there and not voting remotely then that could change. But then on the flip side as well, then maybe they're voting in their suburban home districts or other districts that previously have been less competitive.
1: Or just not voting, unfortunately, because it's negotiating all of that and understanding where they're supposed to be and obtaining their ballot is something that a lot of young people have found very difficult. And that's part of the reason why their turnout is so low.
0: Jonathan, what do you want readers to take away from your book? Is there anything that we haven't had a chance to get to today that you'd like folks to come away with?
1: This has been great. It's been so much more in-depth than most of the conversations I get to have about the book. So I really appreciate that. I think this is the first time I've done any kind of a podcast where we actually talked about rail nodes, uh, urban form. You know, these are the things in the book that I'm most excited about, but I think that a certain type of reader just doesn't care so much about. So it's really nice to talk to folks who care about that sort of thing one thing we did not talk about much is proportional representation as a kind of another path. And it was something I wasn't quite sure how to handle in the book, because it's a book about majoritarian democracies and kind of what happens in majoritarian democracies. But in order to to make that kind of claim, you have to say something about what happens in places where elections operate differently. And so there is kind of a shadow comparison throughout the book that I don't really draw out as much as I might about what happened in continental Europe, which is a place that had the same institutions. It had winner-take-all, districted elections in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And sometime around World War I, they all made a reform and adopted proportional representation. And there are some very interesting questions about how politics plays out differently in that setting. And also in the book, I talk about New Zealand, which made a similar reform in the 90s. And it is something that is worth for people who are frustrated with American style polarization and who are open to thinking outside the box a little bit. We could talk about redistricting reform, and I'm a big fan of redistricting reform. But it might be time to also think a little bit more broadly about other types of electoral reform. I am developing a view that majoritarian democracy is part of the problem and you know two-party system is a big part of it. This ratchet effect we were talking about earlier where all of the various issue dimensions get kind of projected onto just these two bundles, an urban and a rural bundle, that when our politics is organized in that way, we can't help but experience the polarization that we're currently experiencing. And when we look around the world at Germany and Sweden and Finland and the Netherlands, we see things operating in a very different way. It's just the kind of hostility that our voters feel toward members of the out party. It just doesn't exist Between the SPD and the CDU in Germany, you know, when we have these far right parties, people who vote for them and people who don't vote for them are starting to develop a similar kind of hostility. But for most of the political spectrum, there's such a lower level of temperature and such a lower level of hostility. You know, look at how things have played out in New Zealand. I think there's something interesting to think about for Americans as well.
0: I thought that was a really interesting open question at the end of the book was kind of, is this problem going to fix itself or, or are we going to need reformed institutions like representation in order to steer it to a healthier
2: place? May I ask one follow-up question about that? I feel like there's sort of a sense, I and mean, you sort of hear this narrative in American politics that somehow the underrepresentation of urban areas is a feature rather than a bug of our system, that somehow the founding fathers designed this system so that urban areas wouldn't dominate. Do you see a path forward that would somehow overcome that narrative? Or how was this narrative overcome in those places in Europe that moved to proportional representation?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if I have a good answer. I mean, I think that in some ways, the problem that I am focusing on here related to legislatures, like the lower chamber of the U.S. Congress and both chambers of state legislatures, is a small problem relative to the Senate for the Democrats. And the book, I only mentioned the Senate in passing. It's not really from the title of the book, you might imagine it's a book all about the Senate. But the Senate is such a bigger nut to crack. And the level of bias in the Electoral College is not that large. And if Texas and Georgia flip, then the whole conversation will flip and It will be the Republicans who want to abolish the Electoral College. But, you know, the Senate and what that means for the courts, there's so much very strong self-interest on both sides. Imagining some kind of reform that would just give away so much for actors who have a lot of power at the moment, it's hard to envision how that might happen, how a bipartisan kind of reform could happen. It has happened in other places. When it comes to redistricting reform, it's sort of heartening to see how people on both sides, when you put an agenda item on the referendum about redistricting reform, even in states where Republicans have benefited from gerrymandering in recent years, Republican voters will vote for it. They want fairness uh, for the most part. But I think there is a sense that people have going back to like civics class in high school, that there's something about territorial versus population representation in the Senate that is good and just and uh, an important part of of what it is to be an American. How anyone combats that, I have no idea.
0: Thanks so much, Jonathan. This has been a really fantastic conversation. The book is Why Cities Lose. I'll disclose here that I own two copies, actually. I listened to it on Audible. And then, especially because I wanted all of the charts and figures and maps and rail nodes and stuff, I picked up hard copy as well. So now it's time for the section of our show called Appendices, where we go around and round robin. And I'll flag a book, a tweet, a movie, a song, something that relates to the topic of the show. So Jonathan, what is your appendix for this week?
1: Well, yeah, it's related to a conversation we were having earlier. One of you was kind of pressing me on, I think it was Jeffrey, was, was pushing me on the idea of treatment versus selection versus the evolution of the parties. And I'm fascinated by that question, and it's something that I've been wanting to understand. I'm trying to think about research designs that would help me figure that out. And one bit of work on this that's maybe not exactly on this, but it really, I think, has important ramifications, is a work by an economist at Harvard named Ben Enke, E-N-K-E. Ben has been doing a lot of thinking about public opinion and a concept that he calls moral universalism, which he places in contracts to moral communalism. And the idea is that the obligation that you feel, the trust and the kind of empathy you feel for groups outside of your immediate in-group is something on which there is heterogeneity across people. That there are some people who, as you move further and further from their in-group, they care the same amount. So that as you try to get someone to care about, like a friend or a member of their own church or their local community. Or you try to get them to care about someone in a faraway place in the country, or even in another country, or, you know, someone who's poor in a different country, the person's level of empathy kind of doesn't change. That's a moral universalist. And for Ben, a moral communalist is somebody whose empathy and trust really extends to their immediate in-group and doesn't go much beyond that. So he's been trying to measure this, and he's been working on this in a lot of settings. And one of the things that comes out in a lot of his studies, both in the U.S. and other places, is that this thing is correlated with population density. That urban people, and again, I don't know whether it's treatment or whether it's selection, but it appears to be the case that urban people are much more likely to be moral universalists and that rural people tend to be more moral communalists in Ben's research. And I think there's a lot more to do to to see if this holds up. But if it does hold up, it's an interesting observation and it kind of helps understand what might be at the roots of some of the things I observe in the book. This communalism versus universalism thing Turns out to be highly correlated with other aspects of ideology and voting behavior. So that's something that I think readers might be interested in checking out and exploring further. Thanks. Ari?
2: Yeah, actually, something that I was going to use as my appendix, but I think I'm going to change it, actually, in response to what Jonathan said. So I'm actually currently reading a book that I'm finding interesting called The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel. And it's pretty interesting. He's looking at the sort of rise of sort of meritocratic ideals, especially on the left. And he talks about how this sort of fuels polarization in a particularly insidious way and in that basically we not only have a polarization of sort of haves and has nots or winners and losers, but somehow the winners feel like they've earned their success and they've deserved it and that the losers deserve to lose. And he thinks that, that this trend has fueled increasingly politics driven by humiliation and resentment the idea that sort of some groups feel that they deserve their success and others deserves failure. And that rather than, you know, one of the parties trying to eliminate a winner-takes-all system, it becomes a dispute over who deserves to be the winners.
0: That is fascinating. Thank you, Ari. Hey, Jeff, how about you? What's your appendix for this week? Hey Greg, uh, I don't have a
3: song this week, but I, I was going to talk about John Updike. So John Updike makes a number of appearances in Jonathan's book. I'd be interested to hear Jonathan talk a little bit about his background with Updike. But it turns out Updike is a good describer of the economics of places. And I'll leave it to our listeners to find the Updike passage that strongly evokes Laser and Jericho, JP 2005. But I wanted to talk about this passage from a short story that's quoted in Jonathan's book, short stories, more stately mansions. It's set in a fading mill town in Massachusetts. It begins like this. My grandfather came over from Italy to help build those mills, brick by brick. My older brother is a former auto mechanic who now owns a one-third share in a parts and supply store and never touches a tool except to sell it. Our middle brother sells real estate. They had me set to become a Boston doctor, but with the lints getting my father's lungs so early, I was lucky to get through college. I picked up the education credits and an easy master's and now teach general science to ninth and 10th graders. So here you have the origin of this town as an industrial center with the, the original mills. But then you have the following deindustrialization, you have this transition to work in non-tradable services, right? Mechanics, real estate, teaching. And then the narrator goes, and the story goes on to say, fall is our best season. And in recent years, some high tech has overflowed Route 128 and come into the local economy giving a shot in the arm. So we have this very nice illustration, of some of the dynamics that Jonathan's talking about in the book. And then the last sentence of this paragraph is, but cities aren't like people. They live on and on, even though their reason for being where they are has gone downriver and out to sea. And I really wish I had known about this passage about 10 years ago when I was writing this paper with Hoyt Blakely. So the the paper that we wrote is called Portage and Path Dependence. And the paper we wrote is about portage cities. So portage, of course, is the act of carrying a boat or cargo around some obstacle to water navigation. And it turns out these portage sites were really important in early American colonial history as centers for exchange. Later, they became attractive for other kinds of supporting services like finance and insurance and other commercial activities. And we use this example of portage cities to help distinguish between different theories of why cities exist. So in particular, we were trying to distinguish between theories based on natural advantage versus theories based on agglomeration economies. And so the natural advantage story is just that cities are where they are because there's something in nature that is endowed to these locations that's useful for economic activity. So, you know, coal, coal deposits mean that it's going to be really likely that you're going to try to produce steel in a location like in Pittsburgh, right? Agglomeration economies are these spillovers that urban economists think a lot about. The benefits from being close to suppliers, close to customers, close to other workers. And so it turns out poor cities are interesting because... It's been more than a hundred years since Portage has been a direct advantage to these sites. And yet what we see in the data is that even though their original advantage has long become obsolete, these Portage cities today are still persistently large compared with other locations nearby. And so we viewed this as a test agglomeration economies. And the quote would have been a perfect epigraph for that paper. Cities aren't like people, they live on and on, even though their reason for being where they are has gone downriver and out to sea.
1: The paper that you're referring to is great, and I've had my students read it in seminars before. And it it almost seems like Updike has there are things like this sprinkled throughout his fiction that make me think he dabbled in urban economics at some point. Because there's just a lot of those kinds of observations that that link up with some of the classics, you know, Glazer's papers and some of the other ideas that have circulated in urban economics or kind of Described there in this fiction in a really nice way.
3: Is that something that you just had Updike from a long time ago in your mind, or is that something that you came across in more recent research?
1: I think it's just, it happens to be that I was reading the rabbit novels at the just came up somehow was recommended or something, and I started reading those. And I've been reading them on and off for a while, but you know, sometimes when your pleasure reading kind of resonates with your academic work, it's just kind of nice. And maybe I pushed it a little too far, but I thought there was just so much there that's going to help maybe make some of the dry material in the book a little bit more relatable. But it was just dumb kind of timing look that I happened to be reading that for fun when I was thinking about some of these things.
3: Well, it's really fantastic. I mean, I think it adds another dimension to the book. And, you know, like Updike just has like such an economical way, expressing a lot in the sentence that, that really adds, I think,
1: uh, a lot. Oh, thanks.
0: My appendix picks up on a few of these themes, as well as our conversation from earlier about dispersion forces. And so the book that I want to recommend is by Clayton Knoll, who's a political scientist at UCSB, and it's called The Road to Inequality, How the Federal Highway Program Polarized America and Undermined Cities. And it's available both in full-size and bite-sized form. The bite-sized form is an interview transcript with Sam Sklar, whose newsletter I also recommend. We'll drop both of those in the show notes. So the book looks at the construction of interstate highways as a mechanism of political polarization. And it finds that they were a mechanism of political polarization. It tries to explain it. You know, Clayton uses two metaphors that I think are probably most useful as takeaways or previews of the book. So first, he suggests that they are a sort of spark that lights a fuse. He looks at highways as a way for people who already had anti-urban preferences or partially anti-urban preferences. For example, people who wanted to leave the city, but continue to work in the city and highways enable them to act on those pre-existing preferences in a way that they never had been before. Suburbanization really starts early in the, in some cities anyway, in the 19th century, but it's not until the interstate highway system that it's available at scale. And he uses modern survey data as well as historical data on travel times. To show that highways, and I'm quoting now from his interview with Sam, just took a lot of these preferences that existed anyway, and just made it a lot easier for people to act on them, meaning to move uh, not just across the city line, but out into once rural areas, which he argues is technically still suburbanization. But I think one important part of his book is he tries to position it as a different era or a different form of suburbanization, because these highway suburbs are so much more disconnected from the city than other predecessor suburbs were. So that's highways as catalyst or spark. The other metaphor he uses is highways as filters. So to travel on a highway, you need a car. And you probably need a reliable car, probably one that you own. Even just that filters out a lot of people. You also probably need a reason to go wherever it is you're going. And here I'm adding in a little bit. Mixed land uses are often banned in the suburbs. And so if you live in a city, even if you have a car, a reliable car, you may not have much reason to go to the suburbs unless you're visiting a private home there because in many places, other activities are not allowed. So there might be a shopping mall, but other than that, it's not as though there's a mixing of housing and retail and so on. That's, that typology is largely outlawed in the suburbs. So highways operate as filters in this way. And here, you know, Clayton talks about other transportation modes as well, like commuter rail which tends to be costly. Highways are not unique in this regard, but to synthesize a bit, the combination of highways and suburban land use restrictions really operates as a powerful filter that does a lot of work that previous legal restrictions would have done with respect to race, for example, that end up getting outlawed in the middle of the 20th century, but highways and and land use restrictions continue to do a lot of that work. So anyway, fascinating book and I think relates to a lot of the issues we talked about today. So thank you all for being on the show. Thank you, Jonathan, for a great conversation. Thanks Ari for for a great conversation and coming on as our guest co hosts Thanks to Jeff. Thanks to Scholar Pals, our producer. Check the show notes for a link to the book as well as the articles and appendices discussed on the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at denselyspeaking. Let us know what you think of today's show. You can also find us at our personal accounts. Jeff is at Jeff R. Lynn and I am at Greg underscore Schill. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate the show as well. It helps other listeners find the show. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.